Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 66 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today, we're talking about what happens when we die according to the Bible. So, yeah, good news. Tonight's topic is super fun. I can't imagine anything funner than talking about what happens when we die. Okay, I guess I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but listen, stay with me. I honestly think you will be encouraged after listening to all the scriptural truth we're going to go through tonight. Our Bible passages include today Exodus chapter 17, Job 35, Luke 20, and our focus passage, which is 2 Corinthians 5. That's two days in a row we're talking about 2 Corinthians. In answering this question, what happens when we die, which is incredibly important, really, let's start by discussing the issue of how we do biblical theology in the first place. In other words, how do we answer hard questions like this one from the Bible? Most people have a theology. I guess most atheists don't, but most other people have a theology, a certain way they think about God and the things of God. How do we Christians, how are we to approach these big major questions? Maybe we've heard things from our parents. Maybe we apply our own logic to answering these kind of questions. Well, my God would never do that, but he would do this. Maybe we go to our church or pastor and they've told us their take. When engaging in biblical theology, one passage I want us to keep at the forefront of our mind when we're trying to answer these big Bible questions we come across from time to time is Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, which says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So here are three steps to doing biblical theology. And honestly, they're fairly simple, but really important. Number one, start with the Bible. What does the Bible say about a particular subject? And here's the important thing. Not just one verse, but many. For instance, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord is honestly just a small part of what the Bible has to say about what happens when we die or the intermediate state, as theologians call it. The intermediate state between eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, and when we die. What happens between those two states? That's what we're talking about today, what's called the intermediate state. So to answer the question, we start with the Bible, but not just one verse, really not even just two verses. We want to get the whole counsel of God on our question, and that means we're going to want to go to the Old Testament and the New Testament. However, Step number two to doing biblical theology is we need to account for the difference between Old Covenant passages and New Covenant passages. I believe the New Testament must take precedence over the Old Testament, and it's got to interpret it. For instance, I base that belief on a scriptural passage, Hebrews 7, 11 through 18. It says, Now if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, For on the basis of it, people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be according to the order of Melchizedek, and not according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of the law as well. 
For the one, these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah, and Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And all throughout the New Testament, and even promised in the Old Testament, we are seeing that a new covenant has come that has superseded the old covenant. No, the old covenant does not pass away. It's not blotted out, but it is superseded by the New Testament. So when we're answering these questions, the New Testament takes precedence over the Old Testament. And step number three to doing biblical theology, with humility, prayer, and the leadership of the Spirit, we keep going back to the Word of God. We look for more. We look to understand better. The Word has to overwhelm our understanding and permeate our minds to help us understand these questions. So in thinking about what happens when we die, we want to go first to the scriptures and we want to let the New Testament take precedence over the Old Testament and we want to keep going back to the scriptures. Now when I think about the topic of death, I guess I could say it scares me. I still remember as a kid my first real encounters with death. Uh, I think my first one, I don't remember the year. I don't know. Maybe I was 9, 10, or 11. My grandparents were coming to visit us from Miami, my father's uh, dad and his wife. And on the way to this surprise visit, they had a wreck. Um, I think they'd driven, I don't know, 15 miles, um, 15 hours or something like that. They had a wreck they, uh, within, what, 10 minutes of our house, and they were both killed. And it was devastating, obviously, to my dad. And I will never forget, he took me to uh, the location of the wreck, uh, to their van that they were in. Now, they had been taken out, and this was a couple of days later, Um after they had died, but he wanted my help to help him unload the van and get some of their stuff out of it. And I'll never forget uh, the smell of the van and seeing the blood inside of it. I know that's morbid, but nothing made death more real to me than getting stuff out of that van and smelling it, and seeing it, and knowing what had happened in it. That was kind of a, a a shaking period, and it showed me that death was very serious, and nothing at all to joke about or play around with. That said, most of my life, I have not feared death or really wrestled with it right up until my early 30s. And at that point, something happened, something switched in me, and I went from being basically fearless about death to honestly terrified by it. And I don't know what 
caused it or triggered it, but I went through several years of just on and off bouts of terror about death. And the only thing that brought me peace and comfort would be just massive intake of the word of God, reading the word, laying my fears in front of God and meditating on the word and taking in chapter by chapter. It was a lifeline for me through those years because I, I, I can't explain what happened in my mind to go from being basically fearless to basically fearful. But uh, I think God in his word and by a work of his spirit has pulled me away from that. But I, I still um, I still wrestle with death and I think it's a very human thing to do so. You know, it's coronavirus season right now. And honestly, I'm a little unnerved by it. I'm not losing sleep over it. I'm not terrified by it. But I'm definitely unsettled by it. And I'm worried a little bit. What, what could happen to my five kids? What could happen to my wife? What could happen to me, my mom and dad, and my friends in the church I pastor? Death is a constant companion to us as humans because we are mortal. And I want to give us three biblical truths about death, and then we're going to get into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So truth number one from the Bible about death, and we don't take this one seriously enough. Death is here because of sin. Sin brought death. Romans 6, 23, you're familiar with it. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So death is here because of sin. Number two, death is an enemy, a real enemy. There's reason to fear it because the Bible says it's an enemy more than once. First Corinthians 15, 24, Paul writes, then comes the end when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Death is an enemy. Number three, this is good news. Death will end one day. Revelation 21 verse three, John says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Amen? I can't wait till that day. That's going to be a good day. All right, let's read 2 Corinthians 5 and then come back and talk about 10 Bible teachings on what happens after death. One of the biggest ones is in this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to be put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So we are always confident, and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. 
For we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. So here are 10 Bible passages that tells us what happens after death. So we're going to read this, and then we'll talk about the five implications from these passages. And I think that's the way you do Bible theology. You consider what the Word of God has to say on a particular topic, and you put it together, essentially. And then you have a pretty close approximation of the whole counsel of God. Genesis 3.19, number one. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust and you will return to dust. Combine that with Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for people to die once and after this, the judgment. Well, what's the meaning? It means we're all going to die. Bad news, I know. But John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. What is perish? Perish means to rot or to waste away or to ruin or be utterly destroyed, to cease. Well, bad news, we will die. Good news, those who are in Christ will not cease, waste away, rot away. We will not perish. Second truth. 2 Samuel 12, 19. This is when King David had been praying for a child that was just deathly ill and deathly ill because of his sin. 2 Samuel 12, verse 19. When David saw that his servants were whispering to each other, he guessed that the baby was dead. So he asked his servants, is the baby dead? He is dead, they replied. Then David got up from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, went to the Lord's house and worshipped. Then he went home and requested something to eat. So they served him food and he ate. 
His servants asked him, What did you just do? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept, but when he died, you got up and ate food. David answered, While the baby was alive, I fasted and wept, because I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will never return to me. So we see, in the Old Testament, there was an understanding about going to a place of the dead when people died. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 and verse 13 also talk about death. This is an angel talking about the future to Daniel, and he says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Skip to verse 13. But as for you, go your way to the end. You will rest, then rise to your destiny at the end of the days. So this is a big deal in the Old Testament. You can tell reading the book of Job, reading some of the earlier books of the Old Testament, they did not have a firm understanding of what happened at death. But we begin to see in the book of Daniel that there is a developing revelation that has happened, that God is showing them more and more. So not only are they going to sleep in the ground, not only are they going to go to the place of the dead, but they will rise to their destiny at the end of the days. This is a resurrection. Now let's go to the New Testament. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. This is passage number four. There was a rich man, says Jesus, who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was left at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, Remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. So by the way, Jesus never calls this a parable. And as was mentioned last night in our Wednesday night Bible study, I believe by my friend Lonnie, this is one of the few teachings of Jesus where real names are used. And so what does that mean? Well, I think this is Jesus giving us a glimpse into the afterlife. And the phrase here is Hades, which is not hell. Hades is the place of the dead. That's apparently where... This rich man 
who did not know Jesus went to, but Lazarus went to the side of Abraham or Abraham's bosom. So this is some indication of an intermediate state here. Let's keep reading. Number five, 2 Corinthians 5. We've already read 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1. We know that if our temporary earthly dwelling is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this body, desiring to put on our dwelling from heaven, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we don't want to be unclothed, but clothed. So what's Paul talking about here? Well, he's talking about our body as a tent, but he says it's a temporary earthly tent. And in heaven and coming to us, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens. And we're going to find out in a minute, not only do we have an eternal place to live because Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, but we will also have a new body. 1 Corinthians 15. This is passage number six, verse 35. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? Foolish one, says Paul. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you're not sowing the future body. This is talking about being buried in the ground, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants and to each of the seeds its own body. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead sown in corruption, in other words, buried in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. This is some vivid imagery here, but also some really clear teaching. A dead body is planted in the ground like a seed, and like a seed, it blooms into something completely vibrant and beautiful and different, glorious, strong, power, no more weakness, no more dishonor, no more corruption. Now it's incorruptible, no longer a natural body with weakness, now a spiritual body after the resurrection. Man, that's good news. Passage number seven, also from 1 Corinthians 15, just a few verses later, 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin in the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the body is going to be dying corruptible and dying as a mortal body, but raised up incorruptible 
raised up immortal. And when that happens, death will no longer have the victory. There'll no longer be a sting of death. Amen. Passage number eight, First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, dead, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You hear that? These are encouraging words. Those who have died in Christ will be raised at his return and meeting the others in the air. That's fantastic news. Number nine, Revelation 20, verse 11. John says, I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's scary. How do you get your name in the Lamb's book of life? And the answer is not by doing good works, not by trying your best, not by trusting in yourself, not by generally being a good person, but because of what Christ has done. You are not saved by your efforts. You are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You don't add to it. It's all about what he has done. So you don't strive to be saved. You look to Jesus knowing that he has saved you by his death on the cross and you will be saved and delivered from death to life. If you look to him, following him in faith, believing, believing in what he's done for you, that's the gospel. Finally, number 10, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. So let's boil it down. What do we learn about death in the intermediate state according to the Bible? Well, number one, in the Old Testament and New Testament, when people died, they went somewhere. Uh, the Greek New Testament calls it Hades. The Hebrew Old Testament calls it Sheol, the place of the dead. 
Number two, we learn, death was also described as sleeping in the dust in both the Old Testament and New Testament. How could death be like sleeping in the ground and going somewhere? Well, Acts 2.29 says, Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So, David is dead and buried, but he's not in it. Number three, we find the answer to the question of how death can be described as sleeping in both Old and New Testament, but also like going somewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, when Paul says, I'll tell you a mystery, we'll not all fall asleep. I think he means by that, that people who are alive when Jesus returned will be caught up with him. So we won't all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the bleak of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. Well, how does that work? Number four, we can infer from Scripture, this is the deep part, (laughs) no pun intended, we can infer from Scripture that our body stays in the ground and our spirit slash soul goes to a temporary place of the dead, a bosom of Abraham, a place, you know, that like Sheol or a place like heaven, but not the eternal heaven. Paul says it's better for him by far that he die. If you are in Christ like Paul or Lazarus, that place will be better. Now, there's an amazing lack of information in the Bible about this particular intermediate state. And as 1 Corinthians 13 says, we see now through a glass darkly, But I think we can see, you know, even from Jesus's uh, story about Lazarus and the rich man, that when people die, we go to a good place and a really good place. And then the eternal state upon the return of Jesus is the new heavens and the new earth. So there will be a intermediate state when our bodies are in the ground and maybe our spirit souls are with Jesus. But at the return of Christ, that's when in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be given a new body. And and it's going to be amazing and it's going to be fantastic. Well, what's it going to be like to uh, wait for that new body? Well, you know what? I have no idea, but it sounds like it's going to be a pretty interesting time and not at all a bad time. But even Even after death, it sounds like we're going to have something to look forward to ourselves as we await the second coming of Christ. And you even see in Revelation this picture of those who are martyred waiting in the throne room of God, crying out, how long, O Lord? So we're going to be waiting. It's not going to be a bad waiting, but it is going to be a waiting. So final thing, number five. We are coming to an age in Christ where there will be no more death. Death will be ended. In Christ, believers will be welcomed into the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21.1. Unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20.11-15. All people will go to one of those two places based on whether or not they were in Christ, according to John 3.36. So I'm going to close with this, Romans 8.10. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, 
but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. That, my friends, is great news. Let's read the rest of our passages, beginning with Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of Sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? In a little while they'll stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, Select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. The Lord said to Moses, Write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Indeed, my hand is lifted up towards the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Job chapter 35, verse 1. Do you think it's just when you say, I am righteous before God? For you ask, what does it profit you, and what benefit comes to me if I do not sin? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, gaze at the clouds high above you. If you sin, how does it affect God? If you multiply your transgressions, what does it do to Him? If you are righteous, what do you give Him? Or what does He receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a person like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. People cry out because of severe oppression. They shout for help because of the power of the Almighty. But no one asks, where is God my Maker, who provides us with songs in the night, who gives us more understanding than the animals of the earth, and makes us wiser than the birds of the sky? 
There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil people. Indeed, God does not listen to empty cries, and the Almighty does not take note of it. How much less when you complain that you do not see him, that your case is before him, and you are waiting for him. But now, because God's anger does not punish, and he does not pay attention to transgression, Job opens his mouth in vain and multiplies words without knowledge. Luke chapter 20 verse 1 One day as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us, because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they disgusted among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, That must never happen. But he looked at them and said, Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But, detecting their craftiness, he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well, then, he told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up and questioned him. Teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now, there were hmm, seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, also the second, and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For hmm, all seven had married her. Jesus told them, The children of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can no longer die, because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. Then he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can the Christ be his son? While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses, and they say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Brothers and sisters, may we, through the grace of Jesus, overcoming by his death and resurrection, may we avoid the harsher judgment and walk in the new covenant promise of everlasting life for all those who look to faith in Jesus, believing the gospel and following him. May the Lord bless you. Godspeed.